0: Welcome to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a Beverly Hills-based psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. Thanks for joining me here where I talk about sex, relationships, mental health, and dive into your questions with practical answers and real solutions. Each week, I share insights aimed at helping you build an authentic and healthy relationship with yourself, with others, and with your sexuality. It's time to get naked, emotionally, mentally, and on your own time, physically. Pregnancy and childbirth are among the most sacred, time-consuming, vulnerable, and dangerous things a person can do. Since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, a resurgence of focus on the healthcare process and experience of pregnancy-related and postpartum care has been freshly examined and for good reason. So today on the podcast, joining me is Alison Yarrow. Allison is an award-winning journalist, speaker, and author of a new book out called Birth Control, The Insidious Power of Men Over Motherhood, which released last month. And she also wrote the book, 90s Bitch, Media, Culture, and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality. Allison was a TED resident, and her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vox, Insider, USA Today, Time, and Newsweek. Allison, thank you so much for being here with me today. I can't wait to break you know, break down this conversation.
1: Thank you for having me. Let's, let's do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So pregnancy and childbirth, men took it over. Let's start by framing this problem. What happened, and how did you come to recognize it?
1: Well, I came to recognize this problem when I went through this experience personally myself. The first time I became pregnant, I, you know, I reported on it. I'm a journalist. I treated it like it was a story. And I tried to find every fact and every opinion and everything I could about this experience. And I kind of naively believed that while I had been, you know, reporting on um, politics and abortion and legislation, sort of limiting our choices when it comes to our body, for you know more than a decade. By this point, I for some reason believed that birth was sacred or other or wasn't sort of part of these other um, these other systems that we that we live in that are shaped by patriarchy and white supremacy. But I quickly learned that yes, birth to hospital systems are set up in such a way that um, I mean, what we really know is that. The care, birth, and becoming a parent in our country is broken, and that is because of the hospital system. Managed care model, and what that means is that in a hospital you have a few people taking care of many birthers at once, many pregnant women and laboring people, and people giving birth. and And birth is an individual experience. Pregnancy is an individual experience. It requires individual care. Right. Um, so that's sort of the the overarching kind of um, look at it, and we can see we can see the brokenness in our. Abysmal maternal mortality rate, which is you know more than doubled in two decades. It's the highest in our lifetime, uh, and also in the fact that about forty-five percent of people describe their birth experience as traumatic. And you asked sort of why men took it over. How did we get here?
0: And mm-hmm. that's
1: sort of that's something too. That's sort of a little bit of history that's important for us to understand um, at the founding. Do you wanna jump in? I was just gonna say, yeah, let's,
0: let's talk about that because the process yeah. of pregnancy and birthing historically was not something that men were involved in. But over the course of time, as patriarchy ramped up, that changed. So can you educate us a little bit on how that happened?
1: Yes, absolutely. So when the U.S. was founded, uh, birth was attended by Black and Indigenous midwives. Uh, It it was something that happened at home. It was, you know, a sacrament. It was a tradition. Women came together to support this process. So from the time, you know, little girls would, would assist in the birth. And it was a real beautiful communal experience. But what happened was, you know, The medical profession began to develop. Men went to Europe from America to train in medical schools, and they came back to the U.S. with this new knowledge and these skills, and they wanted to practice. And so midwives actually brought them in and taught them midwifery, because the need for healthcare in this country was birth, was attending birth. And so doctors, initially, they sort of apprenticed to midwives like other future midwives did, and they learned the trade but quickly they you know they had new tools, they had arts, they had drugs, and eventually they had hospitals. And so they quickly sort of stole birthing people away from midwives and said, you know, if you come to the hospital, we can give you technology and tools and arts and drugs, and it's safer, it's a better experience. But that turned out actually not to be the case because of puerperal fever, which killed so many people um, in hospitals sort of the early days. At that time, um, home birth was safer for sure. And so you sort of see the fingerprints of this takeover even today. Um, you know, there are more obst- obstetricians who are women than ever before, and yet there is still um, an obstetrics profession that is very much shaped by men and by people who never have and never will give birth.
0: And you talk in your book about how the whole field of obstetrics was born out of a white supremacist belief system. Let's let's break that down a little bit and talk about how it relates to where we are today.
1: Yes. So there was this idea, um, and it's very prevalent in sort of turn of the century medical textbooks and papers about the differences between pelvises, the differences between a black body and a white body. And there was a theory that obviously is not true, but it was a theory at the time that the black birthing body was more hardy, more pain tolerant. And the white birthing body was more frail and fragile and in need of the tools and the arts and the drugs. And so what you sort of, that theory and what came to be a theory in anthropology called the obstetric dilemma, the obstetrical dilemma, which says that female hips are flawed inherently. They they birth babies too soon. All of our closer cousins birth babies that can get up and run and walk, you know, giraffes and Um, zebras and horses, and they can all sort of move immediately and they're independent. But, you know, humans, humans and apes, we birth babies that are not yet fully formed. And that is because of the flawed female pelvis, Um, the black pelvis and the white pelvis being flawed in different ways. So we see the fingerprints of this um, from this anthropological theory because um, it can basically explain male intervention in birth today. With tools, with arts, with drugs, the idea that the birthing pelvis cannot do this on its own—it it, um, it can—it needs to be intervened with by male doctors to get a baby out safely. And there are all sorts of ways that that shows up that I'm happy to talk about if you'd like.
0: Yeah, I, I'm I'm hearing just such a an echo of the narrative of patriarchy uh, that men. Men are the providers and protectors. And I just hear that so entrenched in this philosophy and this approach, right, as if men needed to save women and birthing people from the process, right, and how this really shores up a gap in how we understand gender or how we did at the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and we see it today when Black women report in their own experience that they are denied pain medication right. or pain relief of some sort that they ask for, and doctors don't give it to them, right? I mean, for my book, for my research, I surveyed 1,300 women and birthing people about their experiences, and these kinds of things came up again and again. And you also see it in the managed care model, where... Um, whoever you are entering the hospital in labor, um, you know, there's there's the pelvic exam that you are maybe coerced or consented to to sort of be admitted into the hospital. And we're led to believe that that's necessary, that that's based in evidence, but it's not. And after that, you know, you... No, it's not. Pelvic exams... Um, especially in that stage of of pregnancy and when someone is in labor, there's not great evidence that it really tells us anything or gives us any information about when a baby would be born. It can give us some information, whether or not it gives us quality information. It should only be done if the person receiving it gives explicit consent, right? This is an intimate practice, an intimate procedure. And if you're going through a contraction, it can be incredibly painful to have someone's hand in your vagina. So It's important to understand that the evidence tells us that there are lots of things to look for to know when a baby is ready to be born. And a woman's emotional state is one of those things. Mm -hmm. But um, a vaginal exam, a pelvic exam, isn't necessarily one of those things, but it's actually the first in this what's called the cascade of interventions. It starts with this pelvic exam, And then perhaps contractions are not moving along fast enough for the hospital system's desire to move a birthing person through quickly. Mm -hmm. And so then they want to administer synthetic oxytocin, pitocin to speed up those contractions or get them started if they're not happening. Also, not not a great tactic, not based in evidence. There's no sort of um, standardized, agreed dosage for this medicine. In fact, it makes contractions more painful than natural contractions. And then often what can happen because this process is sort of being moved along quickly in service of, honestly, revenue in a hospital system, is a doctor will say, well, you know, it's you're taking too long, or um, it's dinner time, it's time to go home. There's evidence to show that um, often it has to do with doctor's schedules. And so let's operate. Let's take this baby out via surgery, which a third of all births in this country are surgical births. And the majority of them, my sources say, doctors and experts and studies, that they are unnecessary.
0: I'm really glad you're bringing that up. I've been talking a lot with folks who are concerned about the pregnancy process and the birthing process, especially in light of re- recent legislation. And I'm hearing so many mixed things about whether cesarean sections are helpful or more traumatic than they're worth, right? And I'm sure lots of folks have different opinions based on the needs that they understand in their own bodies. So can you break down a little bit more that, that narrative that people have about cesarean sections and their utility, and why they are beneficial for hospitals to do when they're not needed.
1: Yes. So there's so much to unpack there. I'm really glad you asked Mm -hmm. me to bring this up. So With C-section, as I said, there are about a third of births in the country and many of them, the majority of them are unnecessary. Um, They are a technological procedure that we are very lucky to have for emergency scenarios, for um, something called placenta previa when the placenta actually blocks the exit for the baby. Um, It's really important that we have that cesarean section to be able to to deliver that baby safely. Um, But often what's happening is there are two leading causes of C-section that we know from the research. One is called failure to progress, which essentially means you're taking too long. Um, That idea was sort of created by a doctor who studied only white birthing women a long time ago to establish a standard of labor length. And it's not, the thinking has changed and the research has changed to sort of give women more time to be in active labor. Um, and, and the idea is that we don't want to just sort of do an operation because there are consequences to doing that, which I'll get to in just a second. The second leading cause of C-sections is the electronic fetal monitor, which is another piece of technology that exists in the birth space in the hospital that um, is practically mandatory. Most people are sort of just given this, put it on. That happened to me in my second labor. I was sort of in labor, didn't know what was going on, but suddenly there was something strapped to my body that I hadn't really agreed to have strapped to my body. Um, and the electronic fetal monitor entered hospitals at the turn of the century, not based in any evidence, based on sort of marketers deciding like, let's, let's try out this technology on this population of people. And those, you know, they track the baby's heart rate and they track the mom's heart rate. But what they do most often is send people to have C-sections. And so- they're really a technology that hospitals have become addicted to because of that managed care system. Again, um, doctors and nurses and folks can watch the birthing people from the nurses' station. They don't have to physically be in the room with the electronic fetal monitor monitoring these people and their birth experiences. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So those two things cause the most C sections. And, you know, I think it's really difficult to think back to your own birth and to kind of appraise that experience and to say, you know, I had a C-section, you know, I was told I needed one. I was told that um, something was wrong with me or with my baby. And of course, we're meant to enter this environment, trusting our providers, understanding that they have our best interests at heart. But the truth is, from what we know from the research and also from women sharing their own experiences, is that's not always the case, that these C-sections are often coerced.
0: I really appreciate you saying that. And what is coming up for me around this topic is the mystery of pregnancy and birth. I think that for as much as many women do share their experiences, there's a lot that does not get discussed out of shame, out of um, probably women's own traumatic experiences with the birthing process and feeling very isolated and alone and as if they were the source of the problem and i think that that prevents a lot of folks from sharing the experience and educating one another on what this process is actually like in reality because the, when somebody's pregnant for the first time that there's so much that they learn that they never knew to expect and feel really startled by in many cases not always of course but there can be a lot of trauma that's endured in the unknown of what is happening. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit and how this system of uh, managed care and patriarchal takeover has contributed to that.
1: That's so well put. Something that really struck me about the women and people who took my survey was that They often believed that if something went wrong in their birth, that it was their own fault. They internalized that Mm -hmm. idea because there often is not this conversation with your provider after you have a birth experience, whether you have, you know, whether everything seemed to be perfect to you or you have some questions or some complaints. There isn't really this opportunity to have that processing. I do know of midwives, particularly home birth midwives who, really believe that this is a crucial part of the birth experience. They encourage their, um, their mamas to, to write down the story after it happens, um, to be able to sort of have that process. That's something I did with all of my birth experiences because I wanted to sort of be able to process them in a real way. But there isn't a lot of space for that in our current model. And the other thing that's that I find to be really interesting is related to, to what you're talking about with um, experiencing sort of trauma, but not, like without, because you don't know, there's a lot of effort to, when someone becomes pregnant, there's a flood of advice and information, right? But it's, you know, like buy this stroller, get Mm -hmm. these tests. Here's what you put in the hospital bag. A lot of it is very consumerist and also very practical. It sort of has to do with the logistics of getting to those appointments, your diet, things that are actually important. But I think in the flurry of figuring out that, you know, that schedule, taking those vitamins, you know, doing all of that, we do lose this opportunity to to talk to women and to birthing people about what this is going to be like. And people in my survey did say that when they they were afraid to share their experiences, when they felt like they had a traumatic or a difficult experience because they didn't want to foist that onto someone else. But if they were able to share that experience and it could help someone else, they were absolutely willing to do it, even if it was difficult for them. And that to me was so heartening.
0: That is really beautiful. It brings up this very intentional component of living in a patriarchy that keeps women sort of isolated and afraid to share with one another, right? The more that women talk to each other about the practical things and stay less focused on the experience of things, the more likely they are to be willing to go into this process because it is expected of them in some way, shape or form. And I wonder about the, the managed care system and the rushing through the process that happens without that communication and processing and really the emotional touchstone of the whole experience, how that is perhaps an intentional process. But I think over many centuries of this happening and what I mean by this is patriarchy happening, right? It becomes kind of an unconscious and embedded part of the process to keep women out of the experience and not focused on how they could be better advocates for themselves. And that happens when women are able to share the experiences that they have um, women and birthing people, right? Any, any group that is afflicted by
1: silence. Mm, Absolutely. It's definitely the case that, the midwives' model of care um, is a more reflective and birthing person centered approach. And it's not something that can only be practiced by midwives. It's certainly best practiced by them. They developed it. But whether it's in the home or the hospital or a birth center, the midwives' model of care means that the birthing person, the woman, is the expert in her body. Birth is a physiological process in the body. It is not what it has become under managed care and patriarchy, a procedure in a hospital. And so to sort of have that reframe or to reorient the idea of what this is, to, to return power to the people doing it is is in the history of birth itself and how we've been doing it for as long as we've walked the earth. And also I believe we need to return to that idea because I don't think we would see, I mean, certainly not according to the studies that I've seen, like we would not see the level of trauma, death, um, injury, difficulty, struggle, mental illness, all of these things um, stem from experts coercing, forcing, and delegating care to people rather than considering women the experts in their own bodies and care.
0: I really appreciate you saying that. I think it is so essential that we look at some of the after effects of this process that does reduce birthing people to a cog in a managed care wheel system. Um, And look at what are the, the rates of postpartum depression and anxiety? What are the rates of pelvic floor dysfunction that happen because, and all of the other after effects that we can look to and say, wow, you know, m- mortality rates or injury rates, what is the benefit of having a system that continues to subject folks to so much more potential trauma? And why isn't there focus on addressing those those kinds of um, consequences more proactively? What are your thoughts?
1: There's an OBGYN named Allison Stubbe who gave me this really potent analogy that Um, Women are like candy wrappers when they're pregnant. Uh, Once the candy's out of the wrapper, the wrapper is thrown away. That's how our country treats women. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of this stems from cost and from the managed care model. Um, The only visit with a doctor that is covered by insurance and, and Medicaid in many cases after birth is six weeks after birth. And that's, you know, that's far too long into the future to catch Many things that could be going wrong, more than half of um, deaths from, you know, from childbirth are after the fact. Uh, and after, after birth in a hospital, about 99% of people give birth in the hospital, and most leave between 24 and 48 hours later. Um, if you have a home birth, um, your midwife comes, comes back. You know, she comes back to, to visit you and to give you care in that setting, which is so affirming and important. And everyone should have access to that kind Mm -hmm. of care. Um, Everyone should see a pelvic floor physical therapist after birth, whether you have a surgical birth or a vaginal birth. Um, We have to make sure that our bodies are functioning properly. And there's so much cultural focus on, you know, sort of snapping back, returning to the body you were in, returning to the life that you had, you know, get back to work, all of these things. When, you know, a quarter of people who give birth go back to work just two weeks after they do that. Oh I can't imagine. I, just, that. I know. Wow. I've been like spouting that statistic for years now and I can I also still cannot believe that we stand for that. And then we wonder why the rates of postpartum depression, anxiety, PTSD, all of these things are so high. Mm-hmm. Um I'm, it's certainly because we don't have the postpartum support that we need. Now there there's some hope. I mean there are some states that are trying to expand medicaid coverage to cover up through that first year but what i want to see and make sure we have happen is that that care includes you know universal mental health screening that it includes treatment and support for that that it includes pelvic floor physical therapy and you know physical assessments that 6 week visit i mentioned earlier most often is 10 minutes your doctor might not touch you They give you the green light for sex with your husband um, if you're in a heterosexual relationship. And they tell you you can exercise again. And then they're like, what kind of birth control do you want? Which also is not, you know, that's not a question. That's sort of, you know, trying to manipulate people into getting on birth control. And it's usually not a conversation about um, all of the options, like vasectomy and condoms. And it's what what kind of medication or implant can we can we give you now?
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We live in a world where we are bombarded with messages about who we should be and what we should do. Sometimes it's difficult to trust yourself to make the right decision for you, but trusting yourself to make decisions that align with your values is like anything. The more practice in it, the easier it gets. It can be really helpful to learn how to set boundaries, especially if you're a recovering people pleaser like me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suits your schedule really well. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash naked today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com GetNaked. LMGS.com is a website with findings from the largest ever research study into women's pleasure. In partnership with Kinsey Institute researchers, they asked tens of thousands of women what made their pleasure better, solo and with partners. Then they found the patterns in those discoveries. The physical techniques, psychological techniques, and all that wisdom is organized on omgs.com, as super honest videos, animations, and how-tos. One thing their research found is how easy it is for us to lose our curiosity about pleasure and intimacy. So many of us think things like, I've already got techniques that work for me. I'm good. But finding out what works for other people can help you find new things that you didn't even know you or your partner liked. There's always more to explore. I'm always recommending people of all genders, whether they're single or in partnerships, to check it out. The information is mind-blowing. Go to omgyes.com slash get naked for a special discount. That's omgyes.com slash get naked. Right. Putting so much onus on this person who has just given birth to now think about being responsible for so many other variables except healing their body and learning how to be a parent or learning how to be a parent to more children than they already have right this is such an intense burden to be placed in the laps of people who have just gone through this process what do you think about the FDA's approval of the new postpartum medication and how that factors into everything.
1: There is a, um, a new pill uh, that is claiming to treat postpartum depression. Um, the early sort of studies that we've seen look pretty promising. Um, it is a pill that you take over the course of 14 days, but there are not any long-term studies. And I am always suspicious of any new drug or technology that hasn't been studied over time because of how many that have specifically been created for, aimed at, marketed to women and birthing people um, that have come to have flaws with them and have in some cases been dangerous. Or as is the case with, you know, electronic fetal monitoring, um, there's no evidence to support this. It's causing actual harm. And yet hospitals are addicted to it and can't seem to get, get rid of this technology. Um, it's the case with all kinds of things. And so I just, I, I obviously we need to support people when they have postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. But there's so many societal factors that we need to be addressing.
0: Yeah, that, that's what came up for me too. I think I, I'm all in support of something that is safe and effective if it does help to address the symptoms and the bigger picture. But what I felt really frustrated with was the fact that there isn't a conversation that is as robust about what are we doing systemically to support people who have just given birth. Because it is about people not having paid time off work so that they can actually heal, heal their mind, heal their body, integrate this child into their, their system of wh- whoever lives with them, right? Whatever their family um, or caregivers look like. There's not enough support financially for child care. Like all of the reasons that contribute to postpartum depression being a likely outcome outside of someone's genetic, you know, potential, of course, really just are a, a bygone thought. And and what are we really doing as a system of providers and a system of community to change some of the causes?
1: Yes, those conversations have to happen in tandem. And, you know, as folks have, have said to me, since this drug was released, you know, there are already like quality drugs for depression on the market that moms can take? Like, why is this one different or special? Um, and I think we have to ask ourselves that question. We have to make every option available to people. And that includes talk therapy, and that includes mm-hmm. other options. It includes certainly um, paid leave, subsidized childcare, sort of better care in general, the quality of the care that we're getting needs to improve.
0: Yeah. Also, I think that the quality of education around the process needs to improve. I mean, I was really startled to read um, in the last couple of years that maternal mortality rates, the number one cause of death is actually partner inflicted homicide. And that to me is really staggering and makes me so curious about what kind of education men receive in heteropatriarchal relationships, because that is the primary um, perpetrator dynamic in these cases. So I wonder a lot about what kind of education and support exists for men who are struggling with their own feelings around what it means that their partner is having a, a baby and how they can address whatever it brings up in them. But also, whatever their fears are about the process that might be a component of this rage that then gets directed at their partners.
1: Mm. Men can be such a useful piece of this puzzle. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much service that they can provide in hetero partnerships to their partners. You know, they're at every prenatal visit anyway, right? Like they're, they they can, they can be in charge of nutrition. They can, they can have a real role, And there's an amazing organization called Daddy University that is aimed at sort of reorienting the male role in this to kind of be one that can be more vigilant, particularly for Black men whose birthing partners are Black, to protect those those women and those people in these environments that we know um, are, are not seeing them as equals Um, So that's a, that's a really, um, that's a positive development. The education must start so young though. I think we need to have a country and a culture that reveres birth where the first birth you experience is not your own. If you ever experience a birth, like the first one or the only one is your own. That shouldn't be the way that it is. It should be a narrative that we share. It should be, it, but it, it dates back into, I mean, you know, I write in the book about um, these three 10-year-old girls that I had the privilege of spending time with and talking to them about the kind of sex education that they're getting at their very progressive public school in Brooklyn. And I was just certain that they were going to be getting so much better than I got as a kid growing up in the Deep South, getting abstinence-only education. <laughs> but it wasn't the case. I mean, they really, they learned that you know, men and boys and bodies with penises, they learn that everyone's going to have stuff that comes out. For girls, it's going to be blood. For boys, it's going to be semen. And um, for them, it's going to feel good. And it's going to be, you know, stress, like release stress and sort of bring them into manhood. And for, for girls, they learn blood is messy. We have to clean it up. We have to hide it. Not acceptable. So we have to change that narrative. It has to be more education from the time we are really young. And I've really tried this, I mean, You know, I'm not a perfect parent by any stretch of the imagination, but with my own kids, you know, I had a home birth. So two of my kids were around, you know, they were in the house. Like we needed to talk about what it looks like we needed to talk about where like how a baby actually comes out. And they understand. They know that a baby can come out of a vagina, a baby can come out of a tummy. They're different paths, but that's that's language that I didn't have until I was an adult.
0: I imagine some folks might say, "Wow, that's really beyond the scope of what young children can understand." Um, I disagree. I think that the earlier we teach children about bodies in an age-appropriate way, the more empowerment they have in their bodies and the more they feel equipped to understand these bigger concepts and topics as adults. I'm curious your thoughts on that and how you how you equipped your kids to handle something that might feel really big for them.
1: They have a lot of questions. They're children. I think there is an age appropriate way to talk about bodies for each age. There is an age appropriate way to talk about sex, to talk about feelings to talk about birth. And it's just a matter of, you know, it's test balloons. It's like trying something out and seeing if it lands with them and if they have questions. And what I do with my kids when I'm uncomfortable with something that they're saying is I just try to ask more questions Mm -hmm. or I think they don't understand because it's always going to sort of signal to them that what they think matters, that their questions are not silly, that we can have this ongoing dialogue. Because as we know now, Um, And I'm sure, you know, you know this better than me. It's it's important to have many conversations about sex over time with children. It's not one conversation. And so I think of that with birth too, with bodies, with all of this. I try to equip them with what I think they're ready for at the time where I think they're ready. And if they're not, then we double back and we try again and we do something different.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really smart. One thing that has come up um, a lot Recently in conversations about the birthing process is the position of birth in hospitals and people on their backs. And I wonder in your research, what did you come across that talked about how that is, how that has been um, a co-opting of the birthing process and how it is either helpful or harmful for birthing people?
1: So the midwife's model of care that's, you know, centers the woman as the expert in her body means that she can move about how she wants during birth. She can eat, she can drink, she can be in whatever position. She can be in whatever position suits her body. But in the hospital setting, there is often effort to force people onto their backs to give birth. We know that this can close the, the sort of pelvic outlet up to 70% can make it a lot more difficult to actually give birth. It's a position that allows providers to see between a woman's legs more readily, more easily. It isn't necessarily a position that supports or suits birth. Um, It can cause tearing, we know from the research. um, It increases the rate of third and fourth degree tears, which require sutures and and can, can cause all kinds of other problems. And yet this is absolutely happening in hospitals. It happened to me. Um, I, you know, I had my first child um, was a precipitous labor. She came in about two and a half hours wow. and I just didn't have time. I just, I didn't, you know, she was kind of coming out when we were driving to the hospital and we got in and I just, I was on all fours. Cause that's how, like, that's how my body wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I knew I was on my back and I don't remember how I got there. But you know, I'm sure I was encouraged into that position because that's what the hospital system is the most comfortable with. But it's not, it wasn't the position that I necessarily wanted to be in.
0: Mm -hmm. I've watched so many midwife videos where the woman or birthing person is actually standing. And the the like the assistance that gravity helps in the process and the movement of the body while the woman is standing. helps with so much of what you're describing. And it does seem to feel more organic for some folks and like an easier, an easier ask on their bodies. So, you know, as as we are kind of rounding out this conversation, I have so many more questions I want to ask you. Um, Two questions. Let's talk about this husband stitch, right? And whether or not Well, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about what you've learned about the husband stitch that so many women are subjected to uh, without their
1: consent. So tearing can be something that happens in birth. For a long time, we were led to believe that episiotomy or cutting the perineum um, was preferable to tearing. It's something that generations of women in my family and maybe in your family were told Um, And so doctors just did it routinely and they didn't necessarily get consent. That's still the case today. Um, More than half of the people in my survey who offered that they had an episiotomy said that they did not consent to the procedure. And you can also see that echoed in a massive survey called Listening to Mothers that looked at, you know, thousands of births and people's experiences, you know, lots of non-consent to episiotomy. This is something doctors are doing. Hospitals are not required to report their rates Of this procedure, even though it is a surgical procedure to us, to the public, they are required to like count their own rates, but it's information that's difficult if you are pregnant to get. There is um, a watchdog group called the Leapfrog Group who um, estimates that in some hospitals it could be happening as often as 40% of the time. We know that from the research, from like the large clinical trials that have been done about episiotomy, that it's really almost never called for. It's a barbaric procedure that, is absolutely more damaging in so many ways to the body than to allow the body to sort of naturally tear. Um, And often doctors will say, well, we were doing it to prevent you from tearing. Well, you can't know, I mean, you really just can't predict whether or not someone is actually going to tear. You asked about the husband stitch. So the husband Mm -hmm. stitch is this idea that um, doctors, when they are sewing up either a tear or an episiotomy, that they um, they sew in a very tight way to sort of make the vagina, the vulva, more presentable and tight for heterosexual sex with husbands. Yes. And if you talk about this with with folks, this is happening today. People are still doing this and experiencing lots of trauma. You're nodding your head. Yeah,
0: I hear about it all the time with clients that I work with, and some of them uh, feel very empowered by it because they want to, they want to remedy what they perceive will be a problem. But I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about how. Strong and how recovery bound the vagina is. And my understanding, and I'm not a physician, but my understanding is that this stitch um, really only addresses the vaginal opening, right? And does not actually change the internal experience of the vagina. So it's a lot of placebo effect. Um, And I don't mean to say that and suggest that it is not happening in the body, but there's a lot of um, myth around okay, this must be repairing the internal experience that someone with a penis would have in the vagina, but it's not actually happening. It is uh, uh, just happening on the opening. Am I right in that?
1: Yes. I think that's my understanding of it too. Also not a physician, but, and also my understanding is that it developed because, you know, it was sort of this idea of this kind of like wink, wink procedure between a male doctor and a husband in the room. Like I'm helping you out here. I don't think that it was developed to help women in any way. I think it was developed by men for other men.
0: Yeah. To address a myth that somehow the vagina is going to lose its shape and be worn out by the process of birth, which we know is not the case.
1: I had an OBGYN tell me that often. um, He'll, you know, see patients after birth um, a few weeks later, and the vagina is so resilient that it will be impossible to tell that they had given birth that many weeks ago.
0: Yeah. Um, So last question, how can folks who are considering getting pregnant and 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 or are pregnant and looking to to have birth in the near future how can they advocate for themselves more about what process feels right for them and really how can they dive into trusting their body and trusting their inherent wisdom when they may feel really unaware of kind of the pros and cons of midwifery Um, whether or not midwives are allowed in their hospital, or maybe they're not like what what are some advocating steps for people who want more information?
1: Well, I would recommend that they read my book. The book is for people who want to be pregnant, who are pregnant, so that they can have this information and have their experience validated and the tools they need to be safe and to have a beautiful birth experience. It's also for people who, you know, maybe the birth they had was not sort of what they wanted, or there was some way in which it felt difficult, it's validating for them and for providers who are doing this heroic work, supporting women and birthing people through this time, they need more support themselves. Mm -hmm. I would also say to people who are pregnant or considering being pregnant, it's really important to know the C-section rate of the hospital and of the provider um, and the episiotomy rate, if you can get that too, because um, episiotomy and C-section are not the reason they're most likely to happen is because of the doctor's rate and the hospital's rate, not because of anything that's going on with the mom or with the Mm -hmm. baby. So it's really important to know if you've chosen a provider who has a 60% C-section rate and you don't want a C-section, that's a conversation. That's perhaps choosing a different provider. Um, There's so much power. Birthers are the consumers. Mm -hmm. We have this unbelievable, unparalleled ability to to create life in our body and give birth to it that is inherently so powerful. And I think we should all, I mean, it's not our job to fix a broken system, but we should lead with that knowledge that we inherently have that power. And we should bring that into the room, into conversations with providers. And we should ask every question that we have. And if we get the sense that this provider is not really willing to answer my questions, maybe this isn't the right provider for me. Maybe I need to look elsewhere. There's so much power that we have. I love that. I love that. The
0: only hiccup is that for folks whose insurance doesn't give them a lot of options, then what? Right? A lot of people feel very stuck in in avoiding tremendous costs that they will never get out from under or going through a process that does feel coercive and exploitative with the physicians who will minimize cost for them.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Medicaid covers about half of births in this country, and there are lots of ways that states and local governments and private-public partnerships are sort of getting involved to help people. If you live in New York City and your income is at a certain threshold, you can access a low or no-cost doula. Um, There are other ways to sort of have home birth midwifery care covered through reimbursements. They, you know, there's often midwives have you know, billing folks who can sort of help you navigate that situation. Um, It shouldn't be a position of privilege to have the kind of birth and the provider that you want. And there are ways if you can do the research and sort of navigate the landscape to, to figure it out, to have it be affordable and to make it possible. But we need to do a better job as a country and as a society of elevating these things as important so that everyone can have this experience that they want and need.
0: Great. Last question. Have you thought of sending your book to every politician that exists right now?
1: (laughs) If somebody wants to provide the cost of that (laughs) mailing, yes, I would love to. And every, you know what? And every OB and every midwife and every, I want them to see their experience is validated. But yes, we absolutely need to have this in the hand of politicians. Listen, there are folks who are doing incredibly good work in Washington toward this end, right? Mm -hmm. Cory Booker and Lauren Underwood sponsoring the Momnibus Bill to to protect Black maternal mortality, to sort of provide some oversight in hospitals to make Mm -hmm. sure that the things are being done there that are protecting folks and not sort of threatening their well-being and their health. Um, But yeah, it would be really important, I think, to have these ideas, um, not only discussed sort of among us in our society more readily, but also in the halls of Congress. Absolutely. These are things that, that affect everyone. They are. They are. Well, well,
0: thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about this with me. I have learned so much about this experience. And I really hope everyone listening who is considering being pregnant or who has had a pregnancy and wants to feel validated will pick up your book. It's so good. It is so good. Where can people find out more about you, your work, what you're, what you're doing next, if they want to reach out to you?
1: Well, I'm on Instagram at Ali Yaro, and the book is available wherever books are sold.
0: Great. Well, thank you again. See everyone next week. Thank you for listening to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Everyone has questions, and I want to answer as many as I can, so feel free to email your questions to question at podcast.com. If you're looking for a free 30 minute consultation with me or someone on my team, visit modernintimacy.com and don't forget to join our newsletter, Modern Intimacy, on Substack. Let's meet back here next week. A new episode drops every Tuesday. Disclaimer, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and does not constitute a professional relationship with Dr. Kate Balistrieri or Modern Intimacy. This podcast is strictly for education and entertainment purposes only. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death